This morning we're continuing our sermon series, Running on Empty, where we've been looking at different areas of life that tend to either fill our tank, energize us and refresh us, or, or drain our tank, sort of deplete us and drag us down. And so we've talked about things like relationships and work and priorities, and today we're continuing that discussion, talking about the church. And if you've been here, uh, you know that this is a bit of a series within a series, as the final sermon and the, the running on empty theme is about the church, and we've broken this final sermon up into three parts. So last time we talked about unity in the church, and this morning we're going to address the, the subject of new life in the church. As Paul, the Apostle Paul, points out in his letter to the Ephesians that the life of the Christian is one of constant renewal. It offers us <clears throat> new life every single day. The impact of that truth for each of us it can really be significant when we realize that the good news of the gospel is not only the fact that by grace through faith in Jesus Christ we have eternal salvation, that is obviously a big part of it, but the gospel is more than that. It's more than just salvation after we die in this life. The good news of the gospel is also about experiencing that new life here and now, every day as we live on this earth. It's about daily renewal. It's about growing each day, maturing in Christ, being refreshed, reinvigorated. The gospel is about experiencing a renewed life every single day. In fact, Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In Romans 6, 4, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And we talked about this two weeks ago. The word walk in this verse is the Greek word peripateo. It refers to how we conduct our entire lives. So when Paul talks about walking in the newness of life, he's talking about a daily renewal, an ongoing process that happens throughout our lives. And we'll see that word show up again this morning in our main text. So the point is, once we put off the old self, as Paul says, once we turn away from our former lives, where we were hopelessly lost in our sin, and we turn to Christ, we not only become a new creation, but we can experience that new life, that, that new creation, increasingly as we live day by day. That's what Paul is talking about in our text this morning. And so we're going to talk about what that should look like in our lives as members of the body of Christ, of the church. And having grown up in different churches, I can tell you that I heard a lot of sermons, probably more than I can remember, about the subject of new life or holiness or sanctification. Uh, the idea that we should be renewed and regen regenerated as we live for God and follow Christ, putting away the former things like pride and, and selfishness and sin in general. And all of that is good. Of course, we need those kinds of sermons because as Christians, we're commanded to live holy lives. First Peter 1, 14 through 16 says, As obedient children, 
Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And Peter's quoting scripture here. He's quoting Leviticus 11, um, 44 and 45, I think, as God instructs the people to be holy just as he is holy. Many of those sermons that I grew up hearing were very clear on that point, on that subject, often including teaching about dying to ourselves and crucifying the flesh and so on. And and again, that is good. That is actually necessary teaching for all believers as Jesus himself taught his disciples those same principles. However, what I didn't hear very often in the context of those sermons was the fact that those teachings were originally directed uh, to and designed for the church as a whole, much more than they were for individuals. I think we have a tendency in the church today to make every teaching in the Bible about the individual. And in one very real sense, the teachings of the Bible couldn't be more personal or more individual. So it's not that that approach to Scripture is wrong, it's just a bit incomplete. Okay, because as I mentioned in part one of this sermon two weeks ago, the vast majority of instruction and teaching and correction in the New Testament is directed to the the church as a whole, to the entire community of believers, which then is to be applied in the local context of the church. We rarely see, and there are those occasions, but they are the exception. We rarely see in Scripture uh, direction, instruction, teaching, giving an individual instructions on what to do for their personal ministry. There is some of that, but those instances are by no means the norm in the New Testament. Rather, what we do see all throughout the Old Testament, excuse me, the New Testament, um, even in the letters that are addressed to individuals, is instruction that is intended for the church as a whole. And this is where the video we just watched really hits the nail on the head. The process of experiencing new life in Christ comes by way of discipleship, which happens predominantly through our relationships within the church. And, and by that, by the way, I don't mean uh, just when we're all here on Sundays. Right? I mean as we live our lives alongside other members of the body of Christ wherever we happen to be, just as Hugh Halter described in that video. In other words, overwhelmingly, the spiritual and emotional growth that you will experience throughout your life as a follower of Christ will come through interaction with other members of the church, other followers of Christ in the context of discipleship, mentoring, teaching, fellowship, because that is how God wired us to learn and to grow, primarily through relationships. And so as we continue to work our way through chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians, we'll see Paul continuing to build on his instruction to the church about the church. Not just, it's not just to one or two uh, sort of troublemakers who needed a stern talking to. No, he was addressing all of the believers in the local church about how church that group of believers all together, how their lives should look when they're together, functioning as the body of Christ, which of course is the church. And therefore, it applies to us today just as much as it did to those followers of Christ in the first century. And so even though Paul moves from one subject to another throughout the chapter, each new section is predicated upon the section immediately preceding it. 
So as Paul continues to build his case to the local church about the local church in verses 17 through 24, he's doing that building on the foundation of verses 1 through 16 that we studied two weeks ago. And so appropriately then we will refer back to those first 16 verses today as we work through uh, the following eight verses because you can't have one without the other, okay? So let's turn together there now. To Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, which he wrote to them while he was in prison in Rome in about A.D. 60. All right, this is Ephesians chapter 4, starting on verse 17, as Paul talks to the church about experiencing new life in Christ. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And, and just to reiterate, Paul opens up this new section of the chapter with the word now. Uh, that's just like saying therefore. So after talking to them in the first 16 verses about the need for unity among them, he opens up this next section with now, meaning uh, because of what I just taught you, we can now move on to the next bit. And if you were here two weeks ago, you'll remember that in those 16 verses, Paul was talking about unity. Right? He talked about the need for unity in the spirit within the church and unity in the faith and knowledge of Christ. So point one of the sermon, if you're keeping an outline from two weeks ago, was the church should be characterized by unity. And we'll be talking about point two in the sermon today in just a few moments. But just keep in mind as we continue to read that Paul is basing everything in this section today upon the understanding that first, there must be unity in the church. We can't go any further until we've established that, okay? So let's read verse 17 again and continue from there. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So, so in these first three verses of this new section, Paul is describing the result of not following his instruction in verses 1 through 16. Again, he says, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and they've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So Paul describes those who are not living in the new life that is available to them in Christ, and he says it is because they're darkened in their understanding. And if you look back at his teaching in the first section, in the first three verses, one, two, and three, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then 11 through 14, he says, he, referring to God, gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers. So, so he's gifted all these people and given them to the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Right? So according to Paul, what happens to people when they do not attain to the unity of the spirit and faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ is they become darkened in their understanding. They become alienated from the life of God, hardened in their hearts and callous 
given up to sensuality and greedy for every kind of impurity. This is the result of not following his teaching on unity in the church from verses 1 through 16. And then as we continue to read 20 through 24 now, Paul describes what happens when we do follow uh, the way of unity in the church. So let's read it. Verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. That's a key phrase. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth in Jesus, is in Jesus, okay? Notice the strong emphasis all throughout the chapter, actually, on teaching, which is discipleship. Paul just keeps hammering on the point that we must grow and mature in Christ through the teaching of the gospel, through the church. This is, in other words, a group effort. We're all in this together and responsible for one another to grow into maturity in Christ. But I want to point out that Paul is not simply referring to a maturity of knowledge about Christ. Okay, his statement here goes infinitely deeper than that. The phrase, you learned Christ, in verse 20, this is fascinating, is completely unique and profound. Not only does it not appear anywhere else in the Bible, but to date, neither the concept or the phrase to know a person, any person, as Paul describes it here in this verse, in the ancient Greek, nowhere has that ever been found anywhere else in pre-biblical Greek documents referring to anyone, let alone Jesus Christ. So uh, Paul, in other words, is expressing an idea here that is a completely foreign concept at this point in history. No one had ever heard of this idea before. He's saying that when you truly learn Christ, you're not just learning about him. You're not just learning about his teachings. You're actually learning him. You're learning to know him. You're learning to have a relationship with him. That's what it means to grow in the spirit and the faith and knowledge of Christ. This is discipleship at its very essence. And it's nothing short of awe-inspiring when you realize that as we study, that as we study God's word and heed his voice and develop in community with his church, because these are all living things, that we are learning him. We're not just learning about him, but we're learning to know him personally. We do need to have an intellectual assent and understand who Christ is and understand what he did for us and understand what he means to us today, absolutely. But it has to go beyond that. It has to come to a place of intimate knowing, not just knowing about, but knowing. And so that should at least give us a glimpse into the depth of importance of being in relationship with other believers in fellowship and in discipleship because that is the primary means through which God reveals himself to us. We learn to know him through relationships where we're being discipled by his word, by his voice, and as we walk daily in relationship with others. And, and of course, none of that is to the exclusion of personal prayer and study, of course, but in addition to those things, okay? And then Paul continues describing what we learn to do as we learn Christ. Verse 22. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. We know all about that, don't we? And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So, so the result, when you do attain to the unity of the spirit and faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ, the result of that is that you put off your old self. You are renewed in the spirit of your mind. 
and you put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, Paul is describing here the new life that should be evident in the church. And not just for certain individuals who are super Christians. This is for the church as a whole. This is directed to all believers, all right? And this is the second point in our outline of this three-part sermon. The church should be characterized by new life. All right, when people outside the church look inside, they should see as a whole a family of people who've been renewed in their minds in the likeness of Christ, living holy and righteous lives. Now, does that mean we're perfect? Of course not. Of course it doesn't make us perfect. We still make mistakes. We still mess up. We still sin. And next week's message will address how we respond in all of that. But on the whole, our obedience to God should be evident to those who are paying attention. They should look in and see something different. The holiness and righteousness of Christ should show in our lives. And when it does, it doesn't point people to us as individuals because we're super Christians. It doesn't highlight us and what we can do and who we are and how righteous we are. No, it points to Jesus Christ. And it points to His church as His body, as the body of Christ. Not to us individuals. Because when we obey God's Word... And God's voice, we're not creating a holiness that comes from within us. What we're actually doing is simply reflecting His holiness that He puts inside of us when we trust in Him. We, we cannot make ourselves holy and righteous. We could never be good enough to earn that status. That is something that only God can do in us. But what we can do is we can choose to reflect the holiness and righteousness of God that He puts in us when we attain to the unity of the Spirit and faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ, all right? So our, our first point under our main heading is experiencing new life in Christ is a choice. Experiencing new life in Christ is a choice. And before we go any further, I want to be really clear what I mean about that. Because salvation, being born again, uh, regeneration in Christ is not something that we can simply choose to experience. Now, just like holiness and righteousness, that's a gift from God because He first loved us and has chosen us. He chose us as His children. We have a culpability to respond to that, but He has chosen us. Earlier in his letter in Ephesians 1.4, Paul says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. This goes right along with Psalm 139. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. He chose us before the world ever existed, okay? So what I'm referring to is the choice that we can make to respond to that new life that only He can give us, which is what Paul is talking about here in chapter 4. Otherwise, there would be no reason for Paul to write to the church, to a bunch of believers, and say, put off your old self, right? Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self. In other words, God has given you new life in Christ. But if you want to fully experience that new life in this life, you have some decisions to make. You have to choose to put off your old self, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self. If you want to experience the new life in Christ that is available to you, you need to make some choices. And those choices that you make will have significant repercussions in the degree to which you experience or fail to experience that new life in this life, okay? So when we're born again, 
God places that new life within us. He imparts his holiness and righteousness to us. But even after that, we can choose not to put off the old self, not to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, not to put on the new self. And even though we may be believers in Jesus Christ, what follows is our lives are full of turmoil and struggle because we're not experiencing the new life of Christ like we could be or like we should be. I've experienced that in my life. Certainly I've had brothers and sisters in Christ that I can remember over the years who've come into my office and they pour out their troubles seeking counsel. And to, and to be fair, by the way, uh, we most certainly can experience hardship and struggle as Christians for reasons that have nothing to do with disobedience in our lives. And I want you to know that I know that, and that's the truth. Uh, I love the verse that Kayla posted on our Facebook page this week, where in uh, John 16, Jesus says to his disciples, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Okay? Troubled times are going to come. They just do. That may have nothing to do with bad decisions on your part. We know that. God is greater than our trouble, so we can rest in that knowledge. But it's also true that believers, Christians, sometimes make bad choices and then wonder why they're struggling so much. Why is my life not getting any traction? Why I can't seem to catch a break. And that predicament will often come to the surface in the process of discipleship through counseling and in relationship. And you've probably all experienced it before. I certainly have. A friend is telling you about a job that they're getting ready to take or a job that they're getting ready to leave, a, a relationship that they're getting ready to have or one that they're getting ready to end, some decision that they're about to make or one they've been putting off. And as they tell you about it, you're listening and inside of yourself you know. You know that they're about to make a big mistake. It's burning inside of you. And so you tell them, look, my friend, this is not the way. This is not the way you learned Christ. You know better. And yet they still go off and make that bad decision. And then you find them later scratching their head, wondering what happened when it all fell apart. I've been through that before. I've been through that in my own life and with many friends over the years. And these, these were believers people who had experienced salvation in Christ, friends of mine, but made choices that kept them from experiencing the fullness of the new life in Christ that was available to them, including the choice, by the way, not to be submitted uh, into discipleship within the church. Otherwise, they could have experienced wise counsel and instruction and avoided a lot of heartache. And I can think of no better example of this than a letter that I received this week in my office here. It's from a man I've never met. He's a prisoner in a jail in Columbia. And he sent me this letter earlier this week. I'd like to read it to you. He said, Dear Pastor Rob Rucci, my name is, and I'll leave that part out because we're recording this uh, to go on our website. He said, I just recently read your book, Found. I have no idea how it got to the prison system, but I'm glad it did. First of all, it was a very well-written and enjoyable book was one of those books that I couldn't put down. The most important thing about the book was that it was such an inspiration and has given me hope that anything is possible through God and faith. Like I said before, my name is, I'm 35 years old and I'm a graduate of South Carolina State University with a Bachelor of Science degree in Civil Engineering. 
I say this to say that I thought I had all my ducks in a row, but I was missing one very important thing, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. I was brought up in a Christian household and went to church as a small kid. I've always believed in Jesus, but I forgot to put him first in my life and to completely walk by faith. I believe that is what, uh, what has me in the situation that I am in now. I'm currently in county jail awaiting a pending charge. As I've been sitting behind these jailhouse walls, I have had a chance to start refocusing on the most important thing in my life, and that's God. During these past three months, with daily Bible reading and Bible studies, I feel like I've been making progress. I know that I still have a long road ahead of me, but I now have a peace of mind because I'm putting God first and I'm walking only by faith. Like I said before, reading found has really done a lot for me. I know that I can't stop and back up, but I know that from this day on I can ask for forgiveness and move forward. If it would not be too much to ask from you, would you say a prayer for me and my cellmate? Again, I want to say thank you for the great book. And he signed his name. And why don't we pray for him right now? Father, thank you so much for this man. And his cellmate, his friend with him, Lord, we don't know the situation or the circumstances, but you do. You know it better than anyone else, Lord. And so we pray, first of all, right now, that you would fill this man with your Holy Spirit, that you would flood him with your peace and strength and wisdom and guidance to do what is right and to know what to do next. And Lord, we pray that once you've healed and filled and restored him, that it would begin to spill out as new life to his cellmate's life and all those that he encounters, God. That he would be a light for your gospel in this jail as long as you have him there, Lord. And then once he is delivered from these chains, that he would never again turn back and put on the old self but that he would continue to walk in new life, that he would spread your light to everyone that he comes in contact with. So we ask you for protection and guidance and peace and restoration in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This is a letter from an educated man and a Christian, according to his own profession of belief in Christ. And yet notice what he says in this letter. He says, I've always believed in Jesus. But I forgot to put him first in my life and to completely walk by faith. I believe that is what has me in the situation that I am in now. I think this man is precisely correct in his assessment of his own life. What did Paul say about those who chose not to attain to the unity of the Spirit and faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ in submitted relationship within the church? He said they became darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God, hardened in their hearts and callous, given up to sensuality and greedy for every kind of impurity. Okay? Experiencing new life in Christ is a choice. And until we discipline ourselves to consistently make those choices daily to put Jesus Christ first in our lives, until then, we will never experience the fullness of the new life that He has made available to us. All right, we have to choose to put Christ first in our lives and a monumental part of that decision. In fact, it cannot be overstated. And yet I believe it is one of the least talked about pieces to this puzzle of a life that is fully submitted to Christ and fully experiencing the new life in Christ. It's the part where we are fully submitted to one another in fellowship, 
within the church. We talk about reading our Bibles and praying and studying the Word of God all the time, and all of that is very good and very necessary, obviously, but we absolutely cannot, and I say this without apology, we cannot experience new life in Christ to its fullest without being fully devoted to one another. That's why this letter to the Ephesians, and again, the majority of New Testament Scripture is directed to the church as a whole. The message is for all of us. What am I driving at? As we make choices to attain to the unity of the spirit and faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ, don't forget that one of those key choices is remaining submitted and committed and fully devoted to each other within the body of Christ, within the church. Okay, so experiencing new life in Christ is clearly, it's a choice. And the second point to this section of chapter four is that experiencing new life in Christ is a process. It's a process. Now again, just to clarify what I mean here. When we accept Christ by grace through faith, we're saved. That is an event. It is an occurrence. It is a, a watershed moment when we respond favorably to the voice of the Spirit of God calling us to salvation. However, what Paul is referring to here in this section of chapter 4 is a process of walking out our faith and commitment to Christ and to each other as we go through life. Verse 17, he says, You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Again, that's the word peripateo in the Greek. It's the same word Paul uses in verse 1 that we talked about two weeks ago. It's the same word that we referred to earlier in Romans, and here we see it again. It refers to how a person conducts their entire life. So Paul's saying here, look, don't conduct your life. Don't walk out your life as the Gentiles do. They have become, he says, callous, verse 19. Again, that suggests a process. Rather, be renewed. He says in verse 23, and put on the new self in verse 24. This is a process. Paul's saying, walk out your life after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And the phrase be renewed in verse 23 is the Greek word ananio, which means to renovate. Plug that. It means to renovate, okay? If you've ever renovated an old house or an old car, you know that that's a process, right? That isn't a one-time event. And Paul is saying here, renovate the old man. Put off your old self and renovate. That is how we experience new life in Christ to its fullest. And that is a lifelong process. Doesn't happen overnight. Philippians 2.12. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's talking about an ongoing process. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says, Our inner self is being renewed day by day. In Colossians 3.9 and 10, he says, You've put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, again, teaching, discipleship, after the image of its creator. In, in both of those passages, the phrase being renewed is the Greek word anakinio, which is related to ananio, which also means renovate, but it's also a present tense verb, which means it's an ongoing present time process. We're being renewed as believers in Christ, as followers of Jesus. We're being renovated in an ongoing way. Why is that important? It's important because we need to understand that just because we don't have it all together, 
Because we don't, it doesn't mean that we're failures. We experience failure throughout life, certainly. But that doesn't mean we're not going to continue to progress in Christ. Even when we do fail, it's really important that we look at the big picture, which is that even as Christians, even when we fail, even when we have setbacks, even when we experience shortcomings, we're not defeated because He's already secured our future and the outcome of our lives, which is final victory in Christ. So I titled the second point of this three-part sermon, The Church Should Be Characterized by New Life. It probably would be more accurate to say that the church is characterized by new life. Because the problem is not that there is no new life. The problem is that we don't always accept or reflect that new life that is already ours. And it's really important that we get this. Okay, it's important that we get this because it's the equivalent of uh, like being cured of a, a disease that has ravaged your body and left you weak and feeble. And so the doctor tells you that in time, your body can be stronger and more effective than it's ever been. But it's going to require some serious discipline on your diet and your exercise for the rest of your life. And so you start out gung-ho, you know, seriously committed to the process. But the first time you have a setback, or the first time you experience a failure, the first time you make some bad choices, you eat a big bag of Doritos instead of your asparagus, you skip your workout because you don't feel like getting out of bed, you decide, well, I'm never going to be able to be strong again, so you give up and you remain weak and feeble. That, that would be a total waste of the body that God gave you and the potential to use it for good, right? Anyone who's ever been through physical therapy after an injury knows exactly what I'm talking about. There are days when you don't make as much, pro, uh, as much progress as you think you should. There, there are setbacks in the process of recovery. There are times when you simply don't feel like doing your therapy or even going to the session. There are days when it feels like you're failing, but if you don't continue to work toward recovery, you will never fully recover. If you've ever renovated an old house, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There are always setbacks. When you renovate an old home, it never goes exactly as planned. There are always days when your plans fail. But just because there are failures and setbacks doesn't mean you walk away the first time things don't go as planned and give up on the project. No, you keep working until you overcome the problem. You fix the issue and then you keep moving forward. You keep renovating until the job is complete. And the church, by the way, has a responsibility in this process. And we'll look at that more next week. But when it comes to experiencing new life in Christ, in this life, in this world today, Christians need to have a thick skin. We need to have resolve in our hearts. And we need to have determination in our minds to persevere in the face of failure in spite of the setbacks, even when we don't feel like it, even when we don't feel worthy, we can still experience that new life as a part of the body of Jesus Christ that invigorates and energizes and refreshes us. But that will mean pressing through. It means not giving up, even when it gets hard. Because, listen to me, there will be setbacks. There will be. We are going to fail sometimes. Not everything is going to go as planned. 
But that doesn't mean that we should give up and walk away at the first sign of failure or weakness. No, what we do instead is we acknowledge honestly the shortcoming, the failure, the setback. We have to own it and not pretend that it isn't there. And if it is a result of our own choices, then we repent. We ask God to forgive us. And of course, His Word says, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. Everything. All of it. You don't carry it around anymore. You've been forgiven and cleansed and it's gone. And then you pick yourself back up and you continue on renovating. You notice it isn't finished. There's still work to do. All these words, they mean to renovate. We're being worked on day after day the rest of our lives. We commit ourselves anew. It's a lifelong process of attaining to the, unit of the, the unity of the spirit and faith and knowledge of Christ. How do we do it? By bearing with one another in humility, gentleness and patience and love. That's verse 2 we looked at two weeks ago as well as submitting ourselves to the Word of God and the voice of God through the leadership of the church and through each other and by the Holy Spirit's voice within us. That's verses 14 through, or 4 through 16. And by putting off our old self and being renewed in the spirit of our minds and putting on the new self, verses 22 through 24. And if that sounds like a lot of work, that's because it is. It's a lot of work, but we don't do it all at once and we don't do it alone. It happens over the course of an entire lifetime. And it happens as we surround ourselves with other believers, brothers and sisters in Christ as members of His church. And when you begin to experience that in the church, the unity that we talked about last time and the new life that is available to all of us, that is when your experience as a member of the church of Jesus Christ and this local expression of it will truly begin to invigorate and enhance your life in ways that you probably never imagined. You have to be a part of what's happening. There's, there's more than one uh, component to this. We've talked about two and we'll talk about the last one next week. But for now, focus on these things. When you think about your life in the context of the church, begin to see the church for what it is. And also for what it can be in your life as we all continue growing, renovating together into the unity of the spirit and faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And until we attain to that perfect unity throughout the entire renovating process of getting there for all of us, I will continue to pray daily that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus as we remain submitted and devoted to Him and to each other. Let's pray.